here we go. I'm feeling much better than that sounded. I, need to, I feel like I need to start that over. Um, so I, I was over here last night uh, praying. You know, I, I prepare the message during the week, and then I like to come over and spend some time praying, praying for you, praying for our morning, praying through the message. And, and I'm, I'm sitting right there, and I'm praying, and I, and I felt like the Lord said, the message you prepared is not the message you're going to bring tomorrow. Oh, great. Okay. Um, okay, Lord, what's, what's the message you want me to bring tomorrow? I'll tell you tomorrow. Um, not an awesome feeling sometimes, but, but there, there, there are a couple of Greek words in, in the Bible for, for the word, right? God tells us that his word is the word. That's logos. That's the, the word. And there's another word that means re- called rhema. Rhema means utterance. When you talk about the rhema word of God, you're talking about a, a, a word for today. What does God want to communicate to us specifically today? And I feel like there are some things stirring in my spirit that God wants to communicate to us today that are unique to the 1045 service and distinct from the 9 o'clock service, though there may be some overlap. So um, I want to pray, mostly for me. Uh, ask the Holy Spirit to give us clarity as we listen together for his voice and see where he takes us in the word this morning. Can we, can we do that? Yeah. Uh, Holy Spirit, I love you, and I'm grateful for your presence. And I will just confess to you and in the hearing of my friends that I'm, I'm nervous this morning because I don't come with a prepared script or a prepared message. I'm really leaning, Holy Spirit, into your voice and into your direction as an act of obedience. And I know that there are things that you want to communicate to me and to every person in this room. And so I ask for your insight. I ask for your anointing. I ask for your direction. And I ask for each of us, Lord God, that you would give us ears to hear what you are saying to us, your church, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm thinking through kind of where we've gone in Galatians so far and this disconnect in the Galatian church that Paul is trying to fix in regard to how we come to salvation and what it looks like to follow Jesus. And one of the things that they were wrestling with was there was a picture that was being presented to them by the Judaizers who had come down from Jerusalem about what successful living looked like, what holy living looked like, what it looked like to be a person that God could minister to and God could work through. And I think to the Galatians, it kind of made sense because our brain wants to capture something that we can then aspire to. If I wind up looking like that, I'm going to be the picture of, the image of, the Christ follower that Jesus wants me to be. The challenge is that we live in a culture that paints a particular view of success, a particular view a picture of what it looks like to be worthy, what it looks like to be attractive. There is a standard that we feel like we need to hit to be a person of worth or value. And that is contrary to, that image is the polar opposite of what we actually see in Scripture. One of my favorite authors is an author named Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard calls the kingdom of God the upside-down kingdom. And I was trying to get a word picture to help me understand what that means. And I, and I started thinking about, like, the New York City skyline, right? 
with all of these all of these buildings, these skyscrapers, and and you have these massive skyscrapers and what you want to do is you want to get to the place where you can live in the penthouse because the top of the top is where the wealthy, where the influential, where the who's who get to. If you have a penthouse view in New York, you're somebody. The upside down kingdom, imagine that same skyline with the horizon turned upside down. And so what was the highest point of success and of power of influence, the top of that penthouse now becomes the lowest point in that skyline. And when Dallas Willard calls the kingdom of God the upside-down kingdom, what he is saying is God takes the power structures of the world and turns them on its head. And so the most influential, the most effective, the most powerful is not the one who has made it to the top, but the one whose life is lived in such surrender and humility and submission to Jesus that God can and do anything, God will and can do anything through them. But this other way of thinking starts to creep into my heart. And it starts to creep into my mind. And the more I work to become whatever this picture of success is to me, the less effective I get for Jesus, the less comfortable I become in his presence and in his kingdom, and the more of a disconnect people have when I, I want them to look at me and see Jesus. It doesn't make sense. What God calls us to as his children is so, con- it's not just countercultural, it's like counterintuitive. It looks so very different. And Paul is writing a letter to some other friends of his in a church called Corinth. And he's trying to explain this to them because he wants them to come to a place of freedom. He wants them to live in a place of joy, and he wants them to see that God works in and through them as they are, that they don't have to arrive at a particular station. They don't have to make a particular amount of money. They don't need a particular education in order for the life and love of God to work in them and to work through them. They don't have to be that, whatever that is, to matter to God. And Paul says, this doesn't make sense to other people. Let me, let me share it with you in his words. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. And he says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. It's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will frustrate. Because since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it's Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, the weakness of God is stronger than men. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom and righteousness 
and sanctification and, and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul is calling the Corinthians' attention to the fact that things look very different in the kingdom of God than they do in the kingdom of the world. And if we try to align with the thinking, the advancement strategy, the the power of influence, the way it's expressed in the kingdom around us, we will be out of step with what God actually wants to do in and through us. So Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to you and me, to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. What is the message of the cross? The message of the cross is more than you and I if we place our faith in Christ because of his sacrifice. As Pastor Caden referenced at communion, we can be saved. It's more than that. It's that in the kingdom of God, power structures are inverted because the Jews were waiting for a Messiah who would come and overthrow through an act of force and violence the Roman Empire so that Israel would be restored to what they believed as their rightful place of influence and power in the world. And they saw that being expressed through the power structures of the world, through dominance, domination, and political and military might. And Jesus came and he introduced a completely different system of authority and of power. And he went to the cross. And so the Pharisees, they couldn't see him as a Messiah. They they saw no power. They saw weakness. They saw humiliation. They saw Roman domination. But Jesus knew what he was doing. Because as he surrendered to the will of the Father, as he surrendered on the journey to the cross, his death led to his resurrection. There is something in the message of the cross that says when you surrender, when you go low, when you are willing to die for the sake of others, which is completely countercultural, that is a that is a sign of weakness, of being overcome. That in those places where you are willingly allowing yourself to align with God and demonstrate weakness with trust in him, it leads to a resurrection on the other side. The Pharisees couldn't see that in Jesus because they were, they were subscribing to the, the conventional thought in the world around them of what power looked like, what success looked like. But you and I, with the benefit of history now, can look back and say what Jesus did on the cross outlived the strength, the might, the power of the Roman Empire. We go to Rome now to look at ruins. We go to Rome to look at what was. But Christianity, regardless of what you might hear in America, is thriving around the world. The message of the cross, that we rise by lowering. Not by fighting for position, not by fighting for influence, fighting for attention, not by arguing well. What does Scripture say? Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up in due time. God has a way of turning the world's systems on their head. We have a way of finding ourselves aligning with them even when we don't realize we are. 
Let me tell you a quick story. 2016, Wendy and I are pastoring a church in Federal Washington. We'd been pastoring for about 12 years. We'd been in that church for probably 22. And the Lord began to stir something in our hearts, inviting us to step out of our role as lead pastors, move 50 miles north, and become part of a team as associate pastors. As soon as that began to rise in my heart, I had a quick answer for Jesus. No. For a couple of reasons. One, I love my city. I love my community. Two, I can do whatever I want. I've been here a long time. I am, I am sought after for my opinion in the community. And one of the things that had leaked into my thinking is that there is a progression that pastors need to follow. Janitor? Youth pastor? Associate pastor? Lead pastor. Never move. The world's thinking had begun to capture my own heart. And so as the Lord began to talk to me about that, I, and Wendy and I prayed, it became clear that this is what he was saying. We, we went to our council, we, we went to our, our leadership, and we said we, we need to resign the church and we need to move on and become associate pastors over here. At which point I realized I was not the only one that had let the world's way of thinking seep into mine. Because my friends, friends, fellow lead pastors, could not wrap their head around the thought that I would go from lead pastor to associate pastor as if somehow in that move I was stepping out of the anointing of God. One of my friends looked at me and said, so, so what is it? You just burn out? You just, you just couldn't take it anymore so you had to step down from lead to associate? Thanks, buddy. I had another guy look at me and go, John, this is so, you're a general. I'm like, I am? He goes, you're a general. You really want to move up there and carry that guy's water? Bro. And right when I thought it was about as bad as it was going to get, I had another friend come to me and go, so hey, just between you and me, like, did you have a moral failure? And so now they're sending you out there to restore you? like, no, I'm trying to live my life in step with the Holy Spirit. And though this makes no sense to you, as you are thinking about climbing a particular ladder of influence, God is asking me to humble myself, come under the leadership of others for the sake of his kingdom. Felt really good until I did it. I, I was going up there to be the, the global and uh, local missions pastor. So they, they said, why don't you come and help us build our missions profile overseas and in the community? Maybe do help us do here in this community what, what you had done in federal way. I'm like, oh, you know, sure. So I get up there, and it's a larger church, so there's some staff turnover. And one of the things that I've learned about myself is I'm, I'm a good utility infielder. So when those pastors stepped out, um, they kind of came to me and said, John, will you, will you step into this role at least temporarily? So I found myself as the marriage and small groups pastor. And I'm driving to lunch. I, I went to lunch by myself because it's easier to pout by yourself. And uh, my wife doesn't let me get away with it. And I'm driving back to the office. Have you ever had a, a moment where you're just kind of yelling at God? Like you're, you're mad at him and you're letting him know you're mad? I'm, I'm having one of those moments. And he's being super gracious to not just like, okay, off the freeway then. Um, I'm hot. I'm like, I'm like, like out loud in my car. I'm like, God, I did not 
resign my church, step out of my position as a chaplain in the community, step down from the leadership development program I was president of, sell my house, and move my family to Everett to be a marriage and small groups pastor. Take that. And he said, you're right. You did it because I told you to. And the air kind of went out of the car. And so I moved quickly from, from yelling to just whining. Um, and I, I said, uh, I was like, God, I'm not on the district advisory council anymore. I'm not meeting with the mayor and the police and fire chief anymore. I'm not teaching our educators anymore. I've lost influence. I've lost, people aren't calling me. I, I'm just, I'm not looked up to the same way anymore. And this is really hard. And the Lord said to me, he said, John, the things that you're grieving the loss of, those are the hallmarks of a leader. Well, yes, they are. He said, but I've called you to be a disciple. Crap. Can I say that? It's too late now. I, I said it to Jesus. I should be able to say it to you. And he said, a disciple walks in humility, walks in grace, walks in gentleness, doesn't aspire to position. See, God can use us more effectively when we allow him to meet us where we are instead of trying to be something we're not or get to some place that we aren't. But the, 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 the way the world thinks had so saturated my own soul, I was blind to the fact that I was working in a way that was contrary to the kingdom of God. I want to read you, uh, if you do have your Bible or your phone, I'm going to be in in Matthew chapter 5. This is the the Sermon on the Mount, and it's one of the most beautiful, powerful, lengthiest teachings of Jesus that we have recorded. It's it's three chapters long. But before I read it to you, you can't really understand the Beatitudes, which is what the blessings, which is what we're about to read, unless you first read the preceding verses, the tail end of Matthew 4. This is how Matthew 4 ends, how it concludes. It says, Jesus, in verse 23, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from the, beyond the Jordan. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So Jesus is about to give this beautifully profound teaching on the kingdom of God. And, and there's a crowd that he's beginning to preach to. But who is that crowd made up of? The crowd is made up of those who had been afflicted with various diseases and pains, those who had been oppressed by demons, the epileptics, the paralytics, those who had every disease and affliction. So this is the crowd. And this is why what Jesus says is so profound. Thinking about the upside-down kingdom, God turning the systems of thought of the world on its head. If you had any of those diseases or afflictions that I just mentioned, In Jewish culture, it meant that you were outside the scope of God's will. You were outside the reach of his blessing. You had done something 
or become the kind of person that God was not favorably inclined toward. You are an outcast. And so Jesus is standing on a mountain, and in my heart and mind, I see two groups of people. I see the Pharisees who who would always show up and listen to Jesus, disagree, but they would listen. And you have all these people who for years had been told that they are broken, they are discarded, they don't count, they're not worthy, they don't belong. And Jesus, standing before the Pharisees, in my mind, would have then turned around back to the Pharisees, looked at the crowds, verse 2, and opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who aren't righteous yet, they're broken, but yet they want something more. God says, they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, they'll receive mercy. The pure in heart will see God. The peacemakers will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Bless you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? Dallas Willard, the same one who taught about the upside-down kingdom, says the kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. Another way of saying that is the kingdom of God is where what God wants to happen, happens. And we live in in a time of tension called the now and the not yet. The kingdom of God is here now. God is effectively having his will, but it is not yet fully arrived as it will when Jesus returns. And so Jesus looks at these broken, discarded, discounted people and says the will of God, the kingdom of God, the ministry of God takes place in and through you, not through them. All of Israel looks to them for leadership in how to be like God, in how to respond to God, how to follow the law. But the kingdom of God doesn't belong to people like that. The kingdom of God belongs to people like you, the poor in spirit, the brokenhearted, the imperfect who seek God's presence. If there is anything in you that tries to convince you that you have to become some kind of way as a Christ follower before God will minister to you or minister through you, that's a lie. It's the same lie that the Galatians were wrestling with. The kingdom of God does not move forward. The kingdom of God does not belong to people who are powerful and successful and mighty in the world's eyes, in in the eyes of contemporary culture. The kingdom of God moves forward through broken people who have weaknesses and imperfections that they don't allow to become limiters, offer them to Jesus, and then he operates in and through them. The kingdom of God belongs to you and it belongs to me in all of our dysfunction. John, where do you get 
Where do you get that the kingdom of God belongs to the broken? That God doesn't, if he heals me, if he makes me perfect, if he fixes all the things that are broken, of course he can use me. That's not the testimony of Scripture. Let me, let me read to you something else that Paul had to say, again, to the church in Corinth, but this time in the second chapter. Excuse me, second book. It's in here somewhere. I know it is. Paul had something going on. This is 2 Corinthians 12. That he was begging God to free him from, heal him from, release him from. We don't, we don't know what it is. We don't know what it was. Some say it could have been an illness. Some said it could have just been a demonic visitation that was harassing him and he couldn't break free of. And so three times he begged God to free him from it. And this, this is the response. 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 8. Three times. I pleaded, that word means I begged God about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect, made manifest, made evident, not in your strength, not in your perfection, not in your success. He says, Paul, my power is made evident in your weakness. Paul says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Because when I am weak, then I'm strong. The weaknesses that you have, the weaknesses that I have, don't discount us from being used by God. They don't disqualify us from his love. If anything, they become a magnet for the power of the Holy Spirit to be brought to bear. That's why Paul says, I will boast all the more on my weakness. He's saying, I will confess, I will declare, I will shout from the rooftops that I need God, that I can't do it on my own. There are places in me that are broken. They're just not strong enough. They're incomplete. But rather than go hide, Rather than be discouraged, rather than quit, I go to God and I say, you know, I am weak here. I need you. And God says, my power becomes present, becomes evident in the places where you are weak. That phrase, my grace is sufficient for you. Remember, we said grace was the power of God working in me to do what I can't do on my own. When I feel incomplete, when I feel insufficient, like I can't do it on my own, God says, that, John, is where I want to come and bring my power to bear and make you more than you are in your own strength. But family, if we allow the world's way of defining strength, the world's way of defining power, the world's way of defining success to become our standard, we will immediately disqualify ourselves because no matter what kind of a show you put on for others, you always feel like you're not enough. You know why? Because you're not. And you're not meant to be. 
If you ever get down on yourself for not being perfect, for not being enough, you need to go home and give yourself a hug. You need to knock it off. If you were perfect, if you were enough, you wouldn't need Jesus, you wouldn't need the power of the Holy Spirit, and you would never get done what Jesus has in store for you. Because when you feel like you're enough, you just start patting yourself on the back and celebrating your own successes. The Bible that, that you read, hopefully, that I read, is both full of and written by people who would have been considered by contemporary culture to be failures. Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament, executed by Rome. Peter, of walking on water fame, of first, second, third Peter fame, executed by Rome. Every disciple, aside from John, executed by Rome. It looked momentarily as if the world's power structures had shown themselves more powerful. And yet I sit this morning and I read to you the very words of Paul. And so I say, though he willingly went to his death, Rome did not defeat the gospel. Rome did not beat God. And Paul was not a loser. By, by the standards of the world at the time of Christ, Jesus was a loser. Because for all of the great things he did, he too walked on water, raised the dead, healed the sick. When the power of the Roman Empire was brought to bear against him, he died. And yet we, with the benefit of 2,000 more years of history, can look back to that moment and say what looked like failure was actually success. Because in 2023, you only go to Rome to look at ruins. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is alive and well across the world. The message of the cross. We rise by lowering. We live by dying. God works through broken and imperfect people. Is foolishness to the world. To those who are far from God. But those to us, to those of us who are near from God, to God, it is, it is the power of God unto salvation. I, I, I just felt like I need to close. I could talk to you about this for hours. I just felt like God wanted to kind of pull the curtain back on, on, on how we think of ourselves at times or how we, how we see ourselves, these, these secret thoughts that we just think, God, if you would just fix this about me, you and I could do great things or I could be the kind of person you want me to be. And instead of waiting until God fixes us, we just need to be saying, God, meet me in my brokenness. I am available to you because your power works through weakness. Tyler, would you, would you come? I want to share a picture I have in my spirit. I don't want to pray for you. The Lord just kind of dropped this into my heart. This morning, sometimes God speaks to us. I don't know if that's a new phrase to you. I have a picture in my spirit. Sometimes God speaks to us through his word. Uh, sometimes he speaks to us through other people. And sometimes pictures, images, you see that throughout the Bible, in particular in Acts 2. But I had this picture of a safe. 
And I felt like the safe um, represented the hearts of some of the people in the room today, maybe, maybe some of us online. And it wasn't a safe in the sense that it was preserving something precious. It was actually keeping what was inside from getting out. And I felt like the Lord was saying, I have put things within my people that when they come into the light, when, when, when the, the hearts are open, the beauty of what I have placed in there becomes evident to others and to you. But if the enemy of our soul can tell us there's a lock on that door until you clean up everything else, we will never allow the Holy Spirit to release those gifts, those abilities, those precious jewels out into the world around us. And as I was looking at that closed safe, I just saw the hand of God reaching down, turning a key, and opening the door. And, and what was inside immediately just began to shine out. It was like, it was almost like a kid's cartoon, right? They, they open the vault and like this yellow, like, oh, of all the gold just comes out. I felt like that was what God was saying. I want to do this to my people this morning. I, I don't want them to feel like that door is shut, that door is locked because of any weakness or imperfection or inability they may feel. Because once that door comes open and my Holy Spirit is brought to bear in those places, what was broken looks beautiful. What was tarnished begins to shine. Because our weaknesses are not unknown to God. And yet he says to me and he says to you, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. If that resonates with you, if that bears witness in your own spirit, I just, Tyler's going to begin to just sing the chorus of welcome Holy Spirit over us. And I just want you to allow the Lord to change the way you see that, change the way you think. You may even just want to say to him, God, I am, I am more aware of my brokenness than your power. I'm more aware of my lack than your ability. Change the way I see. And let's let the Holy Spirit begin to do a work in us this morning. Let's add our voices. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and change the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for, to be overcome by your presence, Once more. Lord. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God.
God is what I long for to be overcome by your presence, Lord. Holy Spirit, would you just come to rest upon us in this moment? Lord, all of us have have places where we're weak. Places where we are not what we would hope to be. And rather than hide them from you, Lord, we just, we confess them to you. You see them already. And we invite your Holy Spirit to work in those places. We believe, God, we confess that your grace is enough. And that your power can affect change in us and through us despite our weaknesses. And Lord, where we have aligned with a way of thinking that has had us chasing a standard that is not the standard of your kingdom. Where we've had a view of success or influence that we have longed for but that's out of step with your word and your will. God, we repent. And that word repent means we're going to change the way we think going to change the way we think about you, about life in your kingdom. God, every place where there has been a wound because of something that has been said to us by someone else or by our adversary who you call our accuser, would you pull, pull the bar, pull that arrow out, Lord. Scripture calls it a fiery dart. God, extinguish it and bring healing in that place instead. We receive this morning your strength. We receive your anointing. We understand, God, that you you work through us as we are. Even as we try to become more like you as we walk in step with your spirit. Thank you for receiving us as we are, loving us as we are. Thank you for defining success and surrender. I can do that. I can't always achieve, but I can always surrender. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for leading us. We love you, and we'll follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, thanks for... Thanks for being a family where it's okay to take risks as we try to follow Jesus together. I know sometimes I'm like, hey, let's just take a shot. And this morning, I took a risk. I took a shot. I stood up here with my Bible and said, okay, God, you got to do you. So thank you for... Let's just be that kind of a people, yeah? Cheer each other on. Give each other room to take risks and see what Jesus does. And God bless you. Have a great week.